As I've shared photos and the title of this week's book across SSR social media, I've gotten so many messages from all of you. I remember reading this with my fifth grade class. I checked this out of the library at my elementary school. Wow, I learned so much from this book. Yeah, this one has definitely made an impact. It's Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, written by Mildred D. Taylor and published in 1976. Here's your refresher on the plot. Big picture, the book is a coming-of-age story, starring nine-year-old Cassie Logan and her three brothers, Stacy, Christopher John, and Little Man. The Logans live in southern Mississippi post-depression. As one of the few black families in the area to own their land, many of their neighbors are sharecroppers, the children take great pride in their legacy, but they're still struggling with the realities of racism. When black people in the community are victimized by a streak of incidents described as burnings, Cassie is forced to confront racial tension in a new and scary way. Her experience is impacted by a fascinating and complex cast of characters. Her grandmother, Big Ma, who wants Cassie to learn to accept the way things are. Her brother's friend, TJ, who seeks attention in all the wrong ways, ultimately bringing great danger to the Logan family. Her wealthy uncle, Hammer. Mild-mannered Jeremy Sims, the youngest member of a racist white family who is trying to break away from his siblings. And Lillian Jean Sims, a nasty classmate who unknowingly gives Cassie her first chance to exercise power and speak her mind. This week's guest is Renee Hicks of Book Girl Magic. As Renee tells it, reading is fairly new to her. She started her journey three years ago with the goal to better herself, mind, body, and soul, and she created Book Girl Magic with a few friends in hopes of further diversifying her reading. Those few friends turned into a few thousand in what felt like overnight to Renee. She's also a mother of six-year-old boy-girl twins who are her world. Follow Renee on Instagram at book underscore girl underscore magic, on Twitter at bookgirlmagic, and by searching bookgirlmagic on Facebook. Check her out on YouTube at Book Girl Magic and follow her ongoing reading adventures at www.bookgirlmagic.com. The episode you're about to hear is awesome top to bottom, but let me just tell you, the last 10 minutes especially are not to be missed. Renee drops some amazing insights about kids and family and legacy and history and how meaningful books can really be. Before we get to that, though, you'll hear us talk about everything from annoying friends and race relations to the opportunity gap, institutional racism, and the hate you give. Stay up to date on all things SSR even after this episode is over by following us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at SSRPod, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Please do continue to share that you're listening via Insta Stories or with a five-star rating or review on iTunes. If you want to show your support for the show even further, come on over to Patreon. You can learn more about how to become a sponsor and about the super cool perks you get in return at www.patreon.com slash SSRPodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Many thanks to those Patreon sponsors who are tuning in right now. You're helping to make this happen, and it means so much to me. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Renee. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm psyched to have you on the show. 
Yes, psyched to be here. So excited about this book. You chose Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which is a book by Mildred D. Taylor written in 1976. It is a Newbery Medal winner from 1977. I think a lot of people are familiar with this book, maybe from reading it in school or at least from plucking it from the shelves in their school library. But why did you choose to pick it? Tell me a little bit more about your history with Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which I have to say, it's a little bit of a mouthful. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue, so we're just going to work with it. (laughs) No problem. I remember this book having an impact on me and not really remembering this many years later what it was about, but I remember the way I felt after I read it and how I, I wasn't a reader back then. So I just remember it being a book that I really cherished and loved back then. So before you had actually contacted me, I'd been wanting to read it for a couple of months. I'd just been dragging. So I was so happy that you contacted me. And that was the first book that popped in my head. I was like, I, I want to re- reread this just to kind of experience it as an adult. So it worked out perfectly. What do you remember about the feeling that it left you? Even generally, like even if you can't get into the specifics, like do you remember sort of big picture how it made you feel when you were a kid? I think the sadness, a lot of the, there was a lot of sad parts in there. And I think it was emotionally the first book that had ever made me feel in general, whether it was happiness, sadness, anger. It was the first book that made me feel anything, um, which for me, a lot of times it's hard. I'll read a lot of books and enjoy them, but to actually make me feel emotions is, is tough. And it pulled so many emotions from me. So I just remember feeling for the first time. I was reading an article in the New York Times from 2014 this morning before we started talking, and um, the title of this particular article was, What is the Most Terrifying Book You've Ever Read? And the writer of this article, um, her name is Ayanna Mathis. She is a black writer, and she identified Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry as the single most terrifying book that she ever read. She talks about how she wasn't allowed to read horror books as a kid. Her mom did not allow anything sort of like typically, quote unquote, scary in the house. But she read this book, and this is one of the things that she wrote about it. She said, I was angry as she was angry and outraged as she was outraged. And finally, I was profoundly afraid as she was profoundly afraid. And that resonated with me so much because I think that this book is such an emotional one. Like Mildred yes. D. Taylor paints the feelings in this book so beautifully. Absolutely. And, and I'm going to be totally real here. I'm a white woman. And so my experience reading this book is very different than so many other people's experience reading this book. And I'm so glad that you wanted to read this book. I know one of the missions of your book club, Book Girl Magic, is to really like celebrate black women authors and right. black characters. And so you're the perfect person to talk about this book with. Well, and thank you. <laughs> I just want to like come right out and say that. Like I have some blind spots here. And so I feel like you're really going to be able to bring a unique perspective to me. And I think sure. I have a lot to learn from like reading this book from someone else. But I felt angry and I felt afraid reading this book. So I related to that article very much. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I think it definitely draws a lot of emotion. So I'm glad that you were able to feel something from it, too. It was it was good. I read it, I think, probably when I was in fourth or fifth grade. I remember reading it in elementary school. I got it Mm -hmm. out from the library. I think we read it in class. And as I started reading it, recently, I kind of had a memory that maybe we read some of it aloud. Like as I was reading through it myself, I kind of had this memory of my teacher reading it to the class, which 
was always like my favorite thing when I was in elementary school to be read to. It was always so nice. When you were starting this on your recent reread, it sounds like it's something that you had wanted to reread. What were your first impressions of those first few pages? Oh, just them walking down the road and, and kind of living painting. It was painting a picture of the, you know, the white kids being able to ride on the bus and then you having this bus driver that basically terrorizes them every day. First emotion was anger in reading that and just being in disbelief that this was actually happening and that an adult could feel this way towards kids. Like it just, all of this is new to me when it comes to racism and and that, because I didn't personally have any, I guess, dealings with that growing up. So now it's kind of a mission of mine to go through history and learn. So to to see this as an adult and actually understand it, especially after some of my most recent reads, it, it was shocking to me that they were going through that and an adult, you know, was picking on them kind of. For context, the book takes place in 1933. So it's around the time of the Great Depression in Southern Mississippi. So right there, we kind of already know that we're we're getting into a really difficult territory um, at this time in history. And our narrator, our main character is Cassie, who's nine years old. As Renee mentioned, we meet her as she's walking to school with her three brothers. She has one older brother, Stacy, and then two younger brothers, Christopher, John, and Little Man, who is my favorite character. I love Little Man so much. Yes. And that scene with the bus driver was extremely upsetting. And we get right into it too, which I liked about the book. Like within a few pages, we're already getting a sense of the disadvantages that exist Mm -hmm. for these kids. And we find out that like there is no school bus for them. And Little Man is sort of the one who's like posing the questions that I think we as readers want to know. He's like, why don't we get to ride the school bus? And they don't have the money. And um, as you mentioned, there's a bus for the white students who go to Jefferson Davis School. Of course, it's called Jefferson Davis School. Mm -hmm. And the bus driver like makes it his mission to run the kids that are walking to school off the road every day. Yeah. So it's like a game of hide and seek. They have to kind of Let's get to this point and cross over before the bus driver gets here and, you know, kind of hide and be out of the way. And sometimes they make it, sometimes they won't. Sometimes it's raining and it's a little more difficult. So it's like a daily task of trying to escape, which was unfortunate. It was kind of sad to see that. And it's the first day of school, too. And so they're all dressed up like one of the first things that Cassie talks about is how her mom had put her in her like fancy Sunday church dress and it doesn't fit her quite right. But her mom was like, you have to make sure that you take care of this. It has to stay in good shape. And something that I picked up on really quickly because of that is that their family has such a sense of pride about them. And I mean that in a good way, like they take a lot of pride in sending their children to school because there are a lot of kids in their community that aren't able to go to school or or whose parents don't prioritize them going to school and their mom's a teacher and like education is a huge focus for them. So it seems to me that their parents take like such pride in making sure that their kids not only go to school, but look their best going to school and know how to take care of their things. And they also take a lot of pride in their land, which is something that sets them apart from a lot of their neighbors as well. Yep. Because a lot of their neighbors were still trying to pay off their debts and whatnot. Yeah. A lot of the neighbors are still sharecropping. um, So So they're like living on white men's land and working for them and only being able to take a portion of what they pull in. 
the Logan family, Cassie's family, has like 400 acres of their own land that they're farming. And it's really hard for them to make ends meet still. Cassie's dad is off working on the railroad to like bring in enough money to make ends meet because it seems like they've fallen on hard times. And something else that I thought was interesting that was clear right off the bat is that Cassie's privy to a lot of pretty adult information. Like she has this sense that there's these financial struggles going on. She's not really sure what she can do about it, but she like kind of knows that there are these very like big, scary adult issues happening around her. She constantly wants to know what's going on and you know, she's supposed to be in her room, but she's trying to listen to figure out what's going on because she's very concerned as a little girl of what what's going on with her family. I loved that she was one of all brothers. And I think that that shaped her as a character so much because, like you said, she's kind of always sneaking around. You know, mm-hmm. they're told to go to their room and then she sneaks into the boys' room where she can more easily, like, spy on her parents. And I wonder how you think her sort of unique position as the only girl in the family shapes her as a character and, like, shapes the way that we as readers perceive her. Because I think she would have been a very different character if she had a bunch of sisters instead. Right. She takes on that kind of maternal role because Stacy is the oldest and he's the protector, but she's kind of, he's like the dad in a sense of the younger, and then she's kind of like the mom. So she's more maternal when it comes to her siblings and taking care of them or protecting them and she wants to make sure that everybody is okay. And she also idolizes her dad so much. Yes. Papa. (laughs) Papa. I love Papa. And I think so many young readers can relate to her. Like, I think so many little girls idolize their dad, even if they have complicated relationships. I know there's a lot of listeners out there who have difficult relationships with their dads or whose dads maybe weren't always available to them or who have gone through struggles. So I don't want to discount that because I know it's not always this blissful relationship. But I do think that to some extent, most young women grow up sort of like looking at their dad as a hero. And that's definitely Mm -hmm. the feeling we get from Cassie. And we haven't even met their dad yet. He's still off in Louisiana working on the railroad. Right. Joey says, well, if Papa was here, this is how we would do things. Like, she's very, very prideful when it comes to speaking about her dad. It's almost like it's Cassie and Papa versus Mama. And so Mama has a very different mindset and Big Ma, too. Oh, yeah, Big Ma. And I loved that she was (laughs) called Big Ma because in my family, my grandmother, we call her Mama. But before she died, my great-grandmother, we called Big Mama. Even even though she was like four foot eight. And so I remember growing up being like, oh, that's like my family. Yeah, that's so cute. So, yeah, I mean, they have these adults in their house. And I think Mama is an interesting character because, as we mentioned briefly, she's a teacher at their school. And we learn much later in the book that her father sacrificed a lot to make sure that she could be educated. And like it wasn't necessarily the easy thing to do for him to have this daughter that went to school and went on to become a teacher, but it's something that she really wanted. And so spoiler alert, everyone, Mama does eventually lose her job as a teacher. And it's so painful for her, I think, because she feels like she's let her father down. Yes. And I just, I'll say this quickly. I'm sure we'll get into it, but I just wanted to kill TJ Avery. Like I, (laughs) I hated him as a character because he was just evil in my mind, but yeah, it was heartbreaking because that's all She just wanted to make these children better and do everything to make them better as people from covering the inside covers of the book and just making them feel like people, you know, and not hand-me-downs, which, you know, little man was, he was on it. When he saw that book, he was like, wait a minute, look at all these names in here. Like, 
you're telling me like this is a hand-me-down this is what you're trying to give me right now I don't want this book and so the mom took much pride in teaching her kids the right things to do and and making sure they're taken care of it's such a healthy lesson perspective, I think, for kids who are reading this book later in history, because as you mentioned, the students get these books in the first chapter. Um, so it's super early on. And they're all excited because they're like, oh, we actually get our own you books, get books this year. Because yes. usually, I, I guess, you know, maybe they have to keep the books in class. Like you don't actually get to take them home with you. So they're all like super excited about it, which in itself is a lesson in perspective. Because like mm-hmm. most kids, especially kids that don't love trees, it's like, great, whatever, I get a textbook to keep. This is sort of a pain, if anything. So just the fact that these kids are so excited about having their own book, I think is like a lesson to kids kids today. I always feel so silly when I say that, but kids today. <laughs> and then to see little man's reaction when he finds that like these books are used and there's, there's like a literal register in the front of the book that makes it very clear that the books were used by white children as long as right. they were in good condition and then they were passed off. That's extremely upsetting to him. As we talked about before, he kind of is like our voice of reason and he's the one right. sitting back and being like, this is kind of screwed up. Right. Because it was like, he was so excited, like, oh, we get our own books. I'm special for a moment. And then he opens that book and it's like, okay, I'm not special anymore because, you know, four people have had this or whatever before me. And now it's coming to me. Like, I'm just an afterthought, you know, and it kind of sucked for him. And they also are sharing a classroom. Like Cassie has to share a classroom with her little brother. And I think the teacher was like, out for a couple of days or something, but right. the way they described the setup of the schoolroom is still such that, like, I think there were, like, sheets dividing the different classrooms, so even if both of the teachers had been there, they kind of would have been in the same physical space. Like, again, just these, like, small nuggets that help you visualize what their reality is like and how different it is, A, from, like, the white children mm-hmm. of 1933, and to say nothing of like how different it is to the reality of, of modern children. Right. And that had to be very distracting, like to have this lesson plan going on and you're trying to focus on your teacher and you've got all this going on around you. Like it's hard to pay attention to your schooling just simply because there's other distractions everywhere. With that, I, I want to talk briefly about something that Tracy from the Stacks podcast and I discussed very briefly when she and I did a New Reads November episode about The Hate You Give. Give, yep. One of Tracy's biggest criticisms of The Hate You Give, because she liked the book, she doesn't love the book. Um, yeah, that's Tracy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go listen to that episode. It's a really yep, good one. It's a good one. Mm-hmm. Is that she wishes that there was a little bit more about institutionalized racism and the way that our infrastructure and our systems keep the races so separate and make it so difficult for black children in particular to close the opportunity gap, close the achievement gap. And I think this book does a really excellent job of examining that with details like The fact that there are classmates of Cassie's who had to stop going to school because it took them two hours, I repeat, two hours to To walk walk. to school one way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, and that's, again, with the question of the buses and why the black kids don't get a bus, but the white kids get one and it's riding right by them. But it's funny you say that, and I think I was able to take Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry in a little bit more because I just, my last two reads were Asada by Asada Shakur, and before that it was The New Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm on this journey and my mind's just being open to like, wow, this really happened. Like this stuff is really happening. And so to read 
what was happening to them as children in the book, it was just kind of like, there it is again. Like they're just kind of being singled out and they're set up for failure in so many ways. It's just even their, their classroom set up, you know what I mean? It's like they're in an environment where there's distractions left and right, where they can't even fully pay attention to what a teacher is trying to teach them. So just little things like that. It's like, yeah, it's a constant struggle for black, black kids growing up. How do you think, I mean, obviously it's a children's book, so it's going to be told through the point of view of a child, but the book is told first person. It's not sort of told examining all of the perspectives. You're really seeing this story directly through the eyes of Cassie, who is a nine-year-old girl. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about how this particular perspective changes like the way that we see issues of institutional racism, changes the way that we see things like this disparity of opportunity and like the way that the logistics are just like set against these kids. Like how would that have maybe been different if we weren't seeing it from Cassie's perspective and if it was maybe more of like a bird's eye view? I think when it comes from Cassie, it makes you feel a little bit more because it's coming from a girl's perspective. I think had it been coming from a boy, it would have toughened maybe the the scene or what was happening because they are boys and boys are expected to be tough and not show these emotions. But coming from her eyes and her perspective and feeling these emotions, you kind of feel for her more and what's going on because she is a, a little girl at the end of the day. Yeah, I definitely think it would have been totally different had it come from a boy's perspective. We would have not felt as much as we did, I don't think. That's so interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. Like, I hadn't even thought about, well, why didn't she choose to tell the story through Stacy's eyes or Christopher John's eyes? Because, yes, she's, you know, a female author, but we've read other books for the podcast that are written by women and told through mm-hmm. the perspective of a little boy or vice versa. So... That's true. It was like sort of this softer perspective. If we're looking at it through these very like traditional boy girl lenses, Stacy would have just had like this very tough guy persona and he would have just wanted to like attack everything. (laughs) That's it. And I actually did the audio version of this. So at the end, um, you can hear you get to hear Mildred D. Taylor talk a little bit about writing this book. and, And yeah, it's actually really cool. So A lot of what she put in this book are actually stories that were told from her grandparents and the elders in her family. So I think of Cassie as kind of being her and and hearing these stories and it's coming from her perspective and the things that she's witnessed within her family. So it was interesting to hear her talk about the book, you know, at the end of this. And uh, I think that it makes more sense why she's doing it from Cassie's perspective, because it's kind of like her as a little girl taking in these stories and witnessing what her family went through during this time period. Now I want to listen to the audio, first yeah. of all. Even if you just get to the, like the last 10 minutes of it, that's it's it's good to hear. Yeah. Everybody who follows me on social media knows that I'm really trying to be better about audiobooks. So. <laughs> yes, even just get it from the library and just listen to the last 10 minutes so you can hear her perspective on that. Well, I'm glad to have that perspective because, and I don't know if the audio version had the same author's note as the paperback that I had, But the author's note in the edition that I read from talks about Mildred D. Taylor's grandfather and how he was such a storyteller. And so I kept wondering, like, how many of these stories come right from her grandfather? And I wasn't sure, like, if the story of the Logans was, like, exact exactly a match to her own family but there are a few scenes later in the book where like nothing particularly happens but where the adults I think it's maybe at Christmas um mm-hmm. where Papa and Mr. Morrison are just like telling stories about their own childhoods and I was wondering how much of that 
came directly from her growing up and listening to her grandfather's stories. Yep, she said a lot of that came. A lot of what's in this book is comes from those stories. Um, I saw the author's note in the beginning, but she talks a, a lot longer about you know writing this book and the the memories that she had of her grandfather and whatnot. So it was actually pretty cool. Oh, I love that. I'm gonna have to and check I think, that out. I don't know because I didn't read it from this version, but she said something about how she told her grandfather that she was going to win the award for this. And then he passed away. The book came out like six months after he passed away. And then six months later, she won the award. But she told they had a conversation and she told him she explained to him what it was. And she's like, I'm going to win this award. And then it happened within a year's time of her doing that. So, oh, my gosh, how heartbreaking is that? Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like in his honor that she got this award when she thinks of that. Yeah. I love that. Well, and it's worth mentioning that this is not a standalone book. And I don't think I read the rest of the books in this series, but Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry is actually a follow-up to a novella that she wrote Mm -hmm. the year before. And then there were two others after. So I wonder how much of this like Logan family saga as a whole, like even outside of this particular installment, how much of it is in honor of her grandfather. And that's pretty special um, right. that any of it is really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely want to go back and read the others just to see what happens. Yeah. Just to see what happens next to this family. We talked for like a second about TJ, <laughs> <laughs> but I think yeah. we have to talk about him a little bit more. TJ is their neighbor, their family's friend. He's Stacy's age. So he's about 12 or 13. His family, they're sharecroppers and a neighboring farm, I believe. And he walks to school with them. And like right off the bat in the, that first scene, we get the sense that Cassie is just like disgusted by him he's at yep, all times. He's over it. Yep. <laughs> I don't have brothers, but everybody that I know who does have a brother, their brother has a friend like this who just drives them crazy. Yes. And won't go away and won't stop talking and has no boundaries with the family. And that's kind of how TJ is. And at first he's annoying, but like not really that big of a deal. Like nobody right. wants him around, but he's not really doing anything wrong. When did right. he start to really irk you? I think the first memory was the cheating on the test. And when Stacy got in trouble for him, like all he was trying to do was like, put the paper away, man. Like before my mom sees put it away, give it to me. And I think that was the first time that he really got under my skin. And then he cheated for a second time and got busted. But then the coat, the coat incident, when he took Stacy's coat, that was it. It was a wrap for me. I was like, this kid, he's, he's got to (laughs) go. He's got to go. Cause he was, yeah, he was horrible. But I think the cheating on the first test, when Stacy got in trouble and he just kind of sat back and let Stacy take the fall for it. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm done with you as a character. I can't. (laughs) Can't do it. I echo that. The first time he cheated, I was annoyed by him. And even before that, when he was sort of like joking with Stacy and the rest of the family about like, you know, it would be super easy for you to just like take the answers to the test from your mom's desk. Because this particular year, Stacy and TJ are in Cassie's mom's class. The slogan, yeah. Sounds like Mm -hmm. really stressful in its own right to like have your mom as a teacher. But I guess when you're in like this very small school community... You're going to have your mom as a teacher eventually. Right. So you got the idea right when he said that, that like this kid's shady, like not loving him. And then when he cheated the first time, and as you said, sat de- sat back and let Stacy take the punishment for him, which at this time history was like a public whipping by his own right, mother in front of, of the whole class. Like, yeah. not, not only just, by a teacher, but your mom, you right. know? 
how embarrassing. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously this is something that I think many people today can't relate to at any level, like can't relate to like the public corporal punishment, let alone any like small segment of that experience. But this all in all sounds really awful. But the coat incident was when I really started to question his character. So Cassie and Stacy and Christopher John Littleman have this uncle named Uncle Hammer, who's like the rich I love Uncle uncle. Hammer. Yes. Love him. Fun fact, Morgan Freeman played him in the 1978 adaptation. I need to go watch that. I need to go see it. I've never seen it. I know. Me too. Super young Morgan Freeman. He must have been like a babe. 1978. So Uncle Hammer is like their rich uncle. He comes to town in this like shiny car that Cassie actually thinks belongs to Mr. Granger, who's like the rich white man in town who used to own their land. And Uncle Hammer notices that Stacy doesn't have like a nice coat to wear to church because he's like a tween boy and is probably like shooting up really tall, really fast and has outgrown all of his clothes. And so he gives him this really nice coat as an early Christmas present. And we talked briefly about like how proud this family is of what they have. Mm -hmm. And this is such a great example of it. Like Stacy goes to church and he feels so good about himself. Like he has a nice coat to wear. He's warm, first of all, which is like very important. And he looks nice. He feels good about it. It. And TJ makes fun of him because the sleeves are a little bit long, which when you have very little, like that's not a big deal. You have to get it big, right? Exactly. To grow into it. So it'll last you some years. Right. Yeah. Better too big than too small. And his, his mom will fix it and take care of it. Right. So TJ makes fun of him for the fact that the coat's too big and tells him that he looks like a fat preacher. Yeah. It's a little snake. <laughs> yeah. Like such a weird, that's just like a weird thing to say. And he ultimately like tricks Stacy into giving him the coat. And at that moment I was like, this kid is really manipulative. Like he's not just annoying. He's not just a bully. Like he's like an emotional bully. Like he'll do whatever he has to do to play a game with you mentally to get what he wants. Right. And I was actually kind of surprised that Stacy gave it to him. Like you're going to give it to the person who's making fun of you. Why would he want to wear it if he says it looks so bad on you? You know, it's like, I just couldn't believe that he ended up giving it to him. It's crazy. It was kind of out of character for Stacy. Yep. I didn't fully believe that he would actually do that. Stacy seemed pretty, like, sharp to me, pretty tough. So it was interesting that he gave in. So, yeah, he gave TJ his coat. And this is sort of, like, foreshadowing. Like, every bad thing that TJ does in the first half of the book kind of preps you for, like, the seriously bad stuff that he does <laughs> in the second half of the book. Yeah. It's in his character, for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Planting the seeds. And... Stacy stays friends with him through a lot of things. And I think that almost any kid can relate to that mm-hmm. part of the story. Like there are definitely parts of this book that are hard for a lot of young readers to wrap their head around. But I think there are parts of Cassie's experience, of the whole family's experience that are very relatable to almost anybody. And and Stacy's relationship with TJ is one of them. Like how many kids have this friend who maybe they met through a family member who happens to mm-hmm. live down the street from them, but who treats them like crap but they they they, still yeah they want to hang on just to say they have a friend they just continue on and you're not sure why like maybe it's sort of these memories that tie you to them or you think that you have something to gain from being their friend right and it made me so sad for Stacy that he like couldn't figure out a way to extract himself from that friendship because in the end it really puts Stacy in some dangerous spots and his whole family really I think of Stacy almost as the peacemaker so just it was easier to be friends with TJ just to keep the peace you guys walk to school every day 
you guys are in class. Like, you have to see each other all the time. So I think him continuing to be friends was his way of just keeping the peace. Even though Cassie saw right through it. She's like, I don't know why you keep bringing this kid around me. I don't like him. And he's just, he continues to be his friend and just keep the peace. And the Logans are just kind of, like, really good people. And so you have to wonder, too, if Stacy saw that TJ, like, had no other friends because he was so annoying. Yeah. And he just was like, okay, I guess you can keep hanging around. Like, I don't want to see you be alone either. And there was an interesting scene, too, when their dad comes home where Stacy kind of confides in him a little bit about a potential friendship with a white boy named Jeremy Sims. Jeremy, yes. is an interesting character as well because he comes from this family that's awful. <laughs> and he definitely is sort of like the runt of that family. Like yep. nobody wants to hang out with him. And he's always trying to hang out with the Logans. And I don't know if it was Stacy or Cassie who talks to the dad about like, well, maybe we should think about being a friend to Jeremy. Like he wants to hang out. He's really nice. And um, I didn't pull out the quote I should have, but their dad goes on this speech about how like ultimately you need to be loyal to like our people. And a friend like TJ is somebody who ultimately is going to have your back and honor you while Jeremy, though he might be nice in the moment, could end up. He can turn on you. Yeah, turning on you one day. He doesn't have loyalty to you. And um, that isn't exactly what happened. But I guess I see their dad's point in that despite the fact that TJ screwed everything up, like being friends with these white families was still much more of a risk for these kids. Right, right. Because you just never know. You never know. So TJ, I don't even know where to go with TJ. So TJ, (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about TJ more because I do think that his like trajectory through the book drives a lot of the plot. He sort of is like catalyzing a lot of the bad stuff that happens. Yep. So he cheats the first time on the test. Stacy gets in trouble. He cheats the second time on the test. He gets in trouble. He gets in trouble and he ends up going to tell the Wallace family and they're the white family that owns this store where there's like a lot of bad stuff going on. Like Cassie's parents won't let them go there because they know that they like, I think they serve alcohol to kids and there's like illicit dance Dancing going Dancing, on. Yep. But the Wallaces are also part of the KKK. Right. So they obviously like want their children to stay away. And after the second cheating incident, TJ goes to the Wallaces store. And I think the implication is that he just like kind of starts chatting about what happened to him. And, Logan and he's mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like telling what happened and you can just kind of imagine it. Like he probably made one offhand comment and these white adults started just like asking him questions and maybe he started to realize like, oh, like maybe these people want something from me and like maybe they'll actually welcome me here. And he gives them all this information about Miss Logan and the fact that she's teaching out of books that are not the ones given to them by the school district or by the county. Yep. That was another point that pissed me off was when he told on Miss Logan and then lied about it. It was like, oh, no, it wasn't that bad. I didn't do it. I didn't say anything. And he ends up getting caught in the end. But, yeah, there was just so many things that he did that just really ticked me off. He was a horrible child. Horrible (laughs) child. Horrible child. And the fact that he went and told these adults about this is the reason that Cassie's mom is then fired from her job. Right. Which puts the family in jeopardy in a lot of ways. Again, we're like aware of the fact that they're in not such a great financial situation. So she can't afford to lose her job. They're already struggling. She's emotionally broken up about all of this because she feels like she let her family down. She was really passionate about teaching. And then... The Logans, like, understandably cut TJ out of their life because they figure out that he's behind all of this. And he goes and makes friends with 
Jeremy Sims's older brothers, like the two yep. older white boys. R.W. and Melvin. Yeah, and they're like hanging around and... Uh, Being mischievous. They get into some hot, hot water. They do. And then, I mean, there's a lot that we get into with details about what happens next, but essentially, like, they end up turning on TJ in the end. They encourage him to steal this gun that he wanted and went over the course of this theft. They end up, like, injuring... They killed the shop owner, actually, Mr. Barnett, and the white boys, like, Used totally sell mm-hmm. TJ out. They're, they, like, don't want to help him, even though it was their idea to go steal the gun. Yep. And it, it's kind of, in my eyes, TJ gets his karma because it's when you look at the way that the Sims brothers treated him, it's the same way that he was treating the Logan family, like, being manipulative, getting things from them, and it's like, oh, you got a little taste of your own medicine, but it was, like, times 10 that he got it. And Cassie has an interesting reaction to TJ getting in trouble because at the end of the book, there's a whole lot of other stuff that happens with the adults where the dad gets injured because the Wallace family, like, catches them coming into town and, like, messes with their wagon and tries to shoot the dad. dad. It's like, there's all these other things that happen. They try to lynch Papa and Mr. Morrison and TJ. Like, there's all these horrible things that happen to the adults as well, but sort of in Cassie's little world, TJ is, like, her peer who's really affected Mm -hmm. by all of this. And in the end, Papa tells... Cassie that he's not really sure what's going to happen to TJ, but because he was involved in the murder of this white man, he might be sent to the chain gang or he might be executed. And even though Cassie had hated TJ for basically her whole life, the last paragraph of the book is really about TJ. She says, in the afternoon when I awakened or tomorrow or the next day, the boys and I would still be free to run the red road, to wander through the old forest and sprawl lazily on the banks of the pond. Come October, we would trudge to school as always, barefooted and grumbling, fighting the dust and the mud and the Jefferson Davis school bus. But TJ never would again. I had never liked TJ, but he had always been there, a part of me, a part of my life, just like the mud and the rain. And I had thought that he always would be. Yet the mud and the rain and the dust would all pass. I knew and understood that. What had happened to TJ in the night, I did not understand. But I knew that it would not pass. And I cried for those things which had happened in the night and would not pass. I cried for TJ, for TJ and the land. That was so beautifully written. I was just like, oh, man. She described that perfectly. Like, And it's funny because I was conflicted as someone who pretty much hated TJ the entire book. At the end, you really feel for him. So it's like, ah, like he got the karma that he deserved, but at the same time, it's like it, it pulls on your heart. Like, you really just don't want to see this kid get beaten up and go to jail and all, of, you know, essentially get the blame for something that wasn't even his idea. But, you know, in those times, it's kind of like if a white person is saying you did it, there's no questioning it. You did it. And that's that's that. That was tough. TJ made me think about Khalil in The Hate You Give. The Hate You Give. Mm-hmm. And it made me think about how TJ sort of symbolizes a kid like Khalil in the 30s. He was set up for failure in so many ways. And mm-hmm. obviously, like, TJ's a really terrible child. Like, he yes. has poor character and, like... <laughs> no denying that. There's nope. no denying that, regardless of whether he's black or white. Like, he's a bad kid and probably would have done bad kid things regardless of where mm-hmm. he came from and, like, who his parents were. But just as Khalil was put in certain situations that were inherently dangerous and that ultimately led to him being shot by the police officers, TJ was put in situations where he had to 
survive. Like he had to manipulate certain dynamics and like sort of like work whatever room he was in. Like he had to figure Mm -hmm. out how to work the white kids at school and how to work the Logans and like how to get by and like get the most out of his life. And ultimately it put him in sort of an unwinnable situation. And that's kind of where Khalil was. And again, like I have to acknowledge my blindness in this situation as a white woman, but you do read a lot about sort of like the plight of the young black man in today's world. Like you kind of are set up to fail. And I felt like TJ really symbolized that in this book. Yes, definitely. I want to go back to the burning that happened when someone got burned. Was that someone in his family, if I can recall? Was it one of the Averys or was it just someone random that got burned? The person who got burned that they went to visit was was Mr. Berry. Okay, that's right, in the beginning, so the mom could show him something. Okay, for some reason I wasn't sure. I thought it was an Avery, but anyways, I just think TJ, there's something in TJ where he just, it's like he has a lot of resentment towards something and it's like he's acting out and being rebellious because of that. And I wish they would have actually gone more in depth with TJ and his family so that we could know, like, you didn't really know more about, other than his, like, his dad coming to the house you know, in in the story or, you know, the end when he's getting basically beaten up and, and dragged out of the house. You don't really know much about his family and his siblings and what the dynamic is there. So I just kind of wondered why he is the way he is. Like, what is going on in that household that's making him act that way towards others? You kind of have to believe that he doesn't get a lot of attention from his parents because, like, why else would he be hanging around with the Logans all the time? Right. And then even the Sims brothers. Yeah. Like, where are your parents? Like, that you're just running around and doing all of this and at night you're robbing this this place to get a gun and it's like what what are your parents doing that you're just able to roam around free and not have a care in the world because it's dangerous times like the logans have these kids on full lockdown at the beginning of the book we find out that there's these burnings going on where the kkk is going around and punishing black people for crimes that they feel they deserve to be punished for um, by burning them. And so the What do Logans, they call that? them the Night Riders or something like that? Or the Riders? What was it? The Night Riders? Yeah, I think they call them the Night Riders. I don't know that they ever actually use the phrase KKK. I right. I think they call them they call them the Night Riders. Yeah, they call them the Night Riders. And so like the Logans have their kids on full lockdown because clearly like there's danger out there. And going back to what we were talking about at the beginning about like all of these emotions that you feel from reading the book, like I felt the fear so much when Cassie can like see the horses like far out or he, she can see like wagons coming in mm-hmm. and she thinks they're coming for her because the kids had like dug that trench for the yep. bus to go into. That was awesome actually. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, they're coming for her. Like yeah. I get it. I feel the fear. So yeah, the fact that like TJ's parents are kind of like leaving him out to fend for himself says to me that there probably is more of a story there. And I wonder if maybe we get more of that in the other books or if it really just like continues to focus on the Logan family. Yeah. And that's kind of why I want to read the next one after this to see what happens. And if we get to know more about TJ and his story and what essentially happens to him after this, but something wasn't right there. There was a disconnect between him and his family or something that was, cause he was just acting out. It was like a like you said, a kid that was just looking for attention and he was doing any and everything. And he wasn't even getting it from his family because they could have cared less, but he was getting that attention from the Logans. Like, what are you doing? You know, why are you running around with these guys or, you know, it's like he didn't care if it was positive or negative attention. Like he just wanted somebody to hit somebody to care that he existed. Right. That's it. It's like, see me, I'm over here. (laughs) Yeah. Let me stir up some trouble and see how you react. Mm -hmm. 
Let's talk a little bit more about the adults because obviously like so much of this story takes place in the world of the kids. And I think, you know, we, we talked about this briefly before, but there's big drama, big, scary stuff happening with the adults, but ultimately like TJ is the one who makes the conclusion. Like we're talking about TJ in the last sentence of the book, despite all of these horrible things that happened to the adults. Right. That being said, I think what was most interesting to me about the adults is the way that each adult seemed to represent like a different approach to handling the racism that these kids were experiencing every day. Like Big Ma had one approach, Mama had one approach, Papa had one approach, Mr. Morris and Hammer, like they all had a different approach and they were all trying to show the kids a different way to deal with this. Did you see it that way too? I did. Cassie kind of points it out when uh, she has that, they're in town and she has that run in with Lillian Dean and she's four. She actually already had apologized before the adults got there. But then Mr. Sims came and like was like apologized to her again. And she was like, for what? Like, wh- I already, you know, why are you making me do this? And instead of she kind of big mom makes her apologize and, and do whatever she needs to do so that they can kind of just walk away from the situation and not be harmed. But in Cassie's mind, she's like, if dad was here, if Papa was here, that would never happen. Like, I wouldn't be bowing down to these people is basically so you kind of get to see the different styles and how they they deal with things, but it also, you know, it's a, a woman's way of handling things during that time. And it might've been different if there was a, a grown man with Kathy, it may not have gotten that far. I don't know. Or may, I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell if Mr. Sims would have been like that. It had a man been in the presence of, you know, but yeah, it was interesting to see the different parenting styles. And even the mom was like, well, if that's the way big Ma wanted to handle it. And that's just what it was like, got to let it go and let it be. Yeah, Big Ma is definitely much more of the mindset of like, this is just the way things are. And if you keep your head down and sort of like, yes, ma'am, everybody, literally, you might get through this and maybe we can stay safe. And that's because she came from a time when things were even worse. You know, it was even right. harder for her. I be- I can't remember if she was born as, I think her parents were slaves. I think Big Ma's parents. And so I think Big Ma was born into like a slave family. And so she knows how much better it's already gotten. And she doesn't want to mess with these white people that could potentially like take them back decades further. Mom kind of seems to like not have such a heavy hand in this conversation to me, Mm -hmm. like I think her role was more in emphasizing the importance of education. And I think if there was any sort of stance that she had on how the kids should be handling the situation, it was more Mm -hmm. like focus on learning things, like do what I did, even though it didn't really work out so well for her, like do what I did, pull yourself up out of these limited options that so many kids have and like get educated and then you'll have some more resources to work with. Right. And I also felt back to Big Ma, I felt Because she's kind of a strong presence in the household with the kids and making sure they're doing what they need to do and listening and stuff like that. So it was kind of different to see her on the other side of it and just just do what he says. Like, you know, she's kind of backing down, but it was like, who is this person? Because, and I think Cassie probably felt that way too. She's like, you're normally telling me what to do. And you you have such a strong presence and a voice when we're at home. And here this man is, you know, she wanted Big Ma to kind of buck up to this dude. And she was like, no, just do what she said. She's like, are you serious right now? You know? So it was very different to see those two sides of Big Ma as well. Totally. It's almost like she thinks that she's going to make Big Ma proud by being like, I'm not going to apologize to you. Like I already said, sorry. I'm not saying it again, like just in front of your dad. I'm not going to call you miss. I'm not doing this. And she's so surprised, like Mm -hmm. you said, when that's 
really the opposite of what Big Ma wanted her to do. And I think the contrast of how Big Ma handles that situation with Lily and Jean and her father in town and the way that Cassie goes on to handle the relationship with Lily and Jean at school. Oh, that was awesome. <laughs> is such a representation of like the old guard and like the way that sort of the older generation was trying to like stay focused on survival and then Mm -hmm. young kids like Cassie are trying to work the system and trying to be smart about it not necessarily to put themselves in danger but just to like make a statement right she basically just like blackmails Lily and Jean she pretends to be her friend and is like okay fine I'll carry your books like so sorry I ran into you yeah and gets her to tell her all her secrets right it's like I want to show you this cool spot come with me and yeah. then essentially just beats her up and like, you're going to, you're, what are you going to do? Go tell on me? Like this little kid beat me up. You're way older than me. That's going to be embarrassing for you to know that this little kid just beat you up. And so I was wondering if it would play out because I couldn't remember like what would happen. But after that, she was just quiet. She just kind of let it ride and Cassie got the best of her at the end. So Big Mom never would have done that. No, no. She'd have been like, leave it alone, carry her books, do whatever you need to do to keep the peace. It's all about keeping the peace. In that situation, she actually kind of like almost took the best advice from like all of the adults in her life because mm-hmm. Uncle Hammer was a hard ass. Like Uncle yeah, Hammer was ready, ready to, fight. to like go fight anybody who screwed with his family. Right. And their mom again is like really focusing on education and being smart. And so mm-hmm. Cassie was being like really smart in that situation. If anything, she right. was being really manipulative. And I didn't I feel like Papa like didn't want them to be violent. But he wanted them to take stand. Stand exactly. You nailed it. That's exactly his personality. It's like, ah, we don't need to fight. Like, we don't need to be Uncle Hammer extreme. But let's find a happy medium where we can still resolve this in a way, but where it's not going to come back on us and and hurt us in the end. Yeah, the adults were interesting. Like, I I, I really liked getting a sense of where they each were coming from and, and seeing how the kids like processed their approaches to the reality that they were facing. Because I think the bottom line about this book is that it's about Cassie coming to terms with what her reality was. Because for so long, it seemed like she was, she had sort of this like loose understanding of of the reality of racism, but because so much of her life existed in this bubble, mm-hmm. living with her brothers and being at school with just black kids, it was almost like all of these changes that were happening in their community with the Night Riders, like all of these new things were coming into her her awareness and she was forced to see things outside of her immediate orbit. And now she's like learning how to deal with that. Right, exactly. I also, in speaking of the characters, I really liked Jeremy. I, like even, he was kind of like, I don't want this to happen, but at the same time, I don't know. He was just trying to keep the peace. And like when he came over for Christmas and, you know, said his hellos and they're kind of, I don't know, Cassie wasn't feeling him whatsoever. But I really liked him as a character because I knew he had a soft heart inside of him. He's trying to keep the peace. Like, yeah, my sister's kind of mean, but at the same time, I'm not like that. I'm trying to show you that not all white people are bad. And I appreciated him. Yeah. He's kind of an odd bird. Like, I think Mm -hmm. he he sleeps in a treehouse. Yes, (laughs) he does. Yeah. You can just, like, kind of assume that his parents are awful to him because Mm -hmm. he does not comply with their worldview. And he just, like, wants to be friends. Right. And he's kind of, I guess, well, he's the youngest, right? I guess Lily and Jean would be older and then R.W. and Melvin are the oldest. So, yeah, they're probably paying more attention to those three than they are him. So, yeah, I liked him, though. I liked him, too. I would have liked to learn more about him. Not that I necessarily wanted to see what life was like in The Sims house, because I hate most of them, but (laughs) it would have been interesting to see what it would be like to be Jeremy Sims in particular. Right. 
Yeah, he was very caring, too. Even at the end when the field was on fire, he came up. He's like, I just want to make sure that you guys were okay, you know? He's just like a good kid. He's the opposite of TJ. Yes, complete opposite. One other line that I wanted to share from the New York Times piece that I mentioned earlier, and I think this is a good way to kind of like start to wind down this conversation um, in reflecting on why Roll of Thunder Hear My Cry was so terrifying to her. The writer of this piece says that there were two like key things that scared her. The first was that all of these things in the book were happening to a little girl, which obviously right. was very relatable to her right. because so much of what she was reading about in history books, those things were happening to adults. Right. And she said the other thing that scared her in Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, is that it forced her to confront the limits of love. Mm. And this is the quote that I pulled out. Why, I asked, couldn't Cassie's parents protect her from all of that awfulness? My mother replied, but they did. I pointed out that by the end of the novel, the Logans were still in enormous difficulty and might lose all they had. Cassie's parents couldn't fix everything. Fixing everything isn't always what protection is, she said, and this is as frightening a truth as any I've ever known. Yeah. I mean, they could only try to prevent so much, you know, but you can't, you can't do it all. I love that quote. No matter how much you love your kids, like you can try to keep things comfortable for them, but like the world is scary. Right. There's only so much you can do. So you have, you're a mom of twins, right? I am. Are they, do you think they would enjoy this book at some point? Like, is this a book that you would suggest to them at some point? Definitely. Um, I actually have cousins that are a little bit older in high school. Tatum and Tenley will be seven next month. Um, so I definitely am putting this aside. I, I do read a lot of young adult and set it aside so that they can, you know, read it one day. I think that they would enjoy it. I definitely want to expose them to these types of things, the reality of what the world is. So it's definitely going to be one that they're going to have to read per mama, because I feel like I was very different growing up, very sheltered, grew up in the suburbs, um, played a mostly white sport of softball. So I was just, I, it's kind of like I had these blinders on growing up. I really didn't know what was happening in the world around me. So again, exploring all of this, it's so new, but I want for them to be in the know, to still be loving and love all, but in the back of their head still understand that this is a possibility. This is how some people think. And just be aware. That's the biggest thing is just to make them aware of the past, you know, their history and what what's happening in the world. I think that's important that they're aware. You talked at the beginning of this conversation about how what you remembered from reading this book when you were a kid is the way it made you feel. Sort of stepping back, we've read the book, we've talked about the book, you listened to the book, and I wonder how that made for a different reading experience. But how do you feel about this book now? Like, what are the emotions that you think you'll remember about it from this reading? Honestly, I think there definitely was a lot of anger. But what I walked away from was how strong each one of these characters were. I think the strength, because each one of them in their own right was a different kind of strength. And together, they kind of meshed well as a family. So I think more so just remembering their strength more so than any other emotions. I think that's the biggest thing that I walked away with was, you know, despite the circumstances and what's being handed to you, they, they, they got through it together. So I think their strength is definitely something that pops out in my mind that I walked away from is, you know, you could be handed lemons, but make lemonade. And they always seem to do that no matter what was handed to them. Um, And they're willing to sacrifice it all for the benefit of their family. I think at some point in time, each character sacrificed something for the betterment of their family. And did this reading of Roll of Thunder Here, My Cry, make you love the book all the more? Or did it somehow ruin it for you from that moment? I love Loved it. Like for me, I knew that I loved it back when I read it. I don't even know if it was middle school or elementary school, but I didn't know why. 
and now this brought back the why. So it was still a five-star read for me. But yeah, I think I loved it even more because, again, the books that I've read as of late, The New Jim Crow, it, it just kind of puts things into perspective and made me understand the little her writing and, and the stories that she was telling. So um, yeah, I definitely walked away loving it more. For sure. Good. Love that. Another book that I haven't ruined for a guest. <laughs> no, I love this one. <laughs> you've already mentioned a couple of the books that you've been reading lately, but I'd love for you to either share more about those books or to talk about um, anything else that you've been reading recently that you would recommend to our listeners. I know you are a big reader with your blog and yes. I actually have to tell you, I saw you um, posted a video about Queenie this morning and we're yes. thinking about choosing that for my book club this month. So oh, thank you for awesome. your recommendations. <laughs> No problem. Yes. So we'll definitely be reading that for April. So I'm super excited for that. So we read Eloquent Rage for the month of February and there was some references to Ida B. Wells. So I got a book on her that I hope to read. New Jim Crow was one that I read recently that just really put things into perspective and how black people are constantly just being held back or put in a position to where they can't be successful. Um, from slavery to the Jim Crow laws and then um, the war on drugs, which is now considered the new Jim Crow. Asada Shakur, which was another one that I read and just kind of her struggle as a member of the Black Panther Party and how even they would say she just robbed a bank and she was nowhere near it. So it was just constant, like trying to tag these crimes to her name to keep black people down. So it's kind of a theme of these books that I'm reading is the oppression and, and black people and, and trying to get through that. Some lighter reads, some more not so heavy reads, I guess I should say. Um, the Proposal by Jasmine Guillory. I'm a big, I love contemporary romance. So the Proposal is definitely one that I just finished last month, and I love that one, too. I, I love a good romance story. So, yeah, I, I have to balance it out. <laughs> I read so much heavy stuff lately. Like, you got to find some fun stuff in there, too. So, Well, it sounds yeah. like you picked the right book to read for SSR in terms of, like, fitting into all of this other reading you were doing. And yes. I feel like it really, like— made this conversation even better than it would have been already because you're doing all this other great reading to inform Cassie's story. Yes, thank you. It, it definitely, I find out a lot with what I read. It kind of pieces itself together. Like there's something from the last book that is incorporated in this one and it, it that happens often in my reading, but I was happy because I think it gave me a better understanding of what they were going through and the times and what black people go through. Well, I will include links to all of the books you mentioned in the show notes for this episode. I'll also include a link to Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry for those who want to check it out. I encourage you to do so in particular if you have not read it. Um, please pick it up because I think it's an important book yes. to come to at this point. I will also include a link in the show notes to Book Girl Magic because I want all of our listeners to check out your blog, to be following you on social media. It's been so nice talking to you. I really appreciate your time. It's been awesome having you on the show. Yes, thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. It was perfect. The perfect read, and I'm so glad that I got to go through it with you and, and discuss it with you. So thank you. Thanks, Renee. No problem. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. 
If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.